Hi, Jamie. Hey, Mike. Hey, I had to get those uh, wood woodsmen out of my backyard there. <laughs> Some guys chopping wood, sawing wood. That's so weird. Well, Jamie, we're here to do Making a Murderer. That's correct. I gotta pull up the right episode here. The last person to see Teresa Five episode. <laughs> Teresa Five. Ter- the last person to see Teresa Alive, episode five. That's right. Jamie, how many have you seen now? I have seen five. Okay. Are you getting ripped by people? Nope. Who are complaining that you haven't seen them all and you're doing a podcast on it? <laughs> no. Although I think that dude may have followed me on Twitter. (laughs) Sure. They're gluttons for punishment. Why would you take the time of your day to criticize something? Just turn it off, dude. Right. Don't listen. But, you know, he's probably hooked. And type notes in the email. uh. It's like he's bored. (laughs) So, Jamie, we've already been through this a little bit, um, how grueling this is to watch. But it's like the... The accident on the road that you can't turn your eyes away from. That's correct. Let's get right into it. What do you say? All right. All right. They start with the blood, the vial. The state argues that we can't allow it. You shouldn't allow that in. And then when they can't get that, they argue that there should be a test to prove that it was not the same blood in the vial that was found in the van. No, no. (laughs) They want to have time from the court to invent a new test that makes it provable that it wasn't the blood from the vial. Come on. Right. Just Well, apparently there's something in the vial that preserves the blood, and if that same chemical is not able to be detected on the blood in the van, then it could potentially prove that it's different blood. And there's a there's an acronym or a short name of that chemical. Ethylene diamine tetracetic acid, EDTA. That they've later, I think, have proven, proven that it's not necessarily in every piece of the sample, that it's not really a good test. But, they, yeah, they want to stall. For, they, they want it not allowed, and they can't get that, so they want this bullshit test, and they struggle to get that. Right. Um, they pretty much say that state employees are good family men and women, and we need we need to have a good reason to defend them, right? Because it's such a strong accusation to accuse them of tainting evidence. But yeah, you know, look what they're doing to Stephen. It's a pretty it's, strong accusation to what they're doing to him. Yeah, those people are just so gross. So, Jamie, tell us what you think of this show. All right, so. As depressing as this show is, I really love it. <laughs> it's just, it's so compelling to watch. Um, you know, I just wish that it weren't real. I wish that it were, you know, some sort of really compelling and convincing reality show. Or not reality show, but like fake reality documentary or, you know, docutainment. Something like that. I really wish it were fake because it's just so good. Um, you know, from that angle, from the just I can't believe it kind of, you know, I can't look away. I have to watch this train wreck kind of angle. But, um, you know, the thing that's so awful is that it's really real. Yeah, we got to remember that as we, as we kind of joke around and recap. And, like, there's really a guy now in, been in jail 10 more years besides the 18. He's already been in jail for the other crime. Yeah. And his nephew's in jail. Ugh. 
Yes. All right, so we stick credits. We come back. The state at this point in the trial, Jamie, was still deciding whether to call Brendan as witness. Um, and the defense says that if you don't call Brendan, then the state should dismiss these other three added crimes, uh, sexual assault, kidnapping, and false imprisonment. And the prosecution, being the just degenerate folks that they are, are basically threatening and saying, oh, if you're going to make it hard on us, then we're going to have to, you know, keep this, you know, evidence in and we're going to have to use Brendan's, um, you know, testimony. They're just so awful. They're basically saying, if you try to fight this too hard, we're going to make it even worse for these people who aren't guilty. Yeah, the, the defense asked for a jury instruction to address any bad publicity related to those charges that um, if we, in other words, if the state were to take away some of those charges, they would have to instruct the jury that they can't consider. They can't let that bias them. And the judge rules against this. The, the judge is a horrible judge, man. He really is. All right. Now we see Kratz complain that we, the way you've got this all set up, we've got to start swimming upstream. The way we start, we're swimming upstream. And Strang, the defense attorney, says... You're supposed to start by swimming upstream. It's your job to prove the guy's guilty. That's correct. You're, you're, you're supposed to be operating with a presumption of innocence. You're supposed to be, this is supposed to be hard for you. God, all these people. All right, Jamie, so the state's left with four, or Stevens left with four charges. After all this wrangling. Uh, homicide, mutilation of a corpse, Felon with a firearm and false imprisonment. And the two lawyers are pretty, they're pretty down now at this point, Strang and Buting. They've gone through like hundreds of juror profiles, I think 800 or so. They only found one that they, where they found a juror that thinks he's innocent. Yeah, it's just, it's, I don't know. I'm, I'm, um, I don't know. I, you, you know, the, it's the same thing. I mean, it's hard to kind of not, you know, say the same things. I mean, you were kidding around a moment ago, but it's really hard to not sort of repeat outrage at the kinds of things that the, that the prosecution falls back on because, the, you know, what they do, if they had known... If they had known that someone eventually was going to take all of this and put it together and present it to the public, I, I am compelled to believe that they would not have done what they've done here. It's just, it's so unbelievable. It, it, you know, it's almost comical. And, and you know, and, and every time we, we talk about any aspect of this ridiculousness, this horrible miscarriage of justice you know i mean all of the um superlatives you know come to mind you know the, the thought that it's outrageous the thought that you know how could this happen you know the innocence of you know of the people involved it, it's just you know, I don't know and yet and yet it's all very logical it's just them defending their livelihoods and their reputations and their you know their accusations that were justified against them they tarnish all that they defend themselves against it by 
by hanging this poor guy out to dry. That's not logical. What they did is not logical. Well, their motivation is logical. Okay. Well, okay. Maybe their their motivation is logical, but what they're doing is just the most heinous thing. And I don't believe that people with a conscience, anybody who believes that they will answer for the things that they do, I cannot imagine would be able to conscience any of this. No, there's a lot of people like that in this world. Yeah, I think you're right. But I'm just saying, I mean, how can you believe that you'll ever answer for the well, things I think I think they, they I think they're partly evil and they're partly deceiving themselves. Like I'm the prosecution of a you know, of a county here. I'm I've got the right to be I think they fake themselves out a little bit sometimes. People do that in life. They they fool themselves enough that they actually start to believe it. I don't know. So, well, Kratz opens the trial and does his opening monologue or whatever they call it. And he says Avery was exonerated the first time, and this has absolutely nothing to do with that. This trial is totally about something else. Um, and then he drops a couple mistakenly spoken phrases. He shows bone fragments of this little girl. Oh, excuse me, this young woman. You know he did that on freaking purpose. Yes, he did do that on purpose, and it wasn't even good writing. I mean, where'd this clown go to law school? It just disgusted me so much. It really did, because it was, it's, it just, it stank of manipulation. It, it was not even good acting. It wasn't even good manipulation. He, oh, God, these people. I wanted to smack that dude across the face every time he, his horrible, ugly face showed on the screen. Pretty violent there, Jamie. Yes, it got, oh, I'm so angry at that dude. Like, that's just, it just, it doesn't, you know what it, it says to me? It says to me that he, I could picture him in high school and college and law school, standing in front of a mirror, whatever mirror was in his dingy apartment that he probably still lives in, and practicing stupid lines like that. Oh, I'm sure. He's, he's polished for sure. Uh, he has the box of bones even there with him to talk about manipulation. One bone in particular, the shin bone, Karen Halbach's daughter's shin bone, and Karen Halbach's the mother sitting right there. Total manipulation, man. Um, so he goes through all that, and then Strang comes in, and he, he stresses the importance of the opening statement, kind of off, out of trial, on camera, but out of the trial setting. And he, he tells us, you know, most of these people have already decided... You know, we just want them to hear that there's another side to this. Um, and then the, the, they, he wants them to know, he wants the jurors to know that the bones were moved, that that should really help the case. Why would the bones be moved if it was just uh, Stephen burning a body? Um, and he's worried about the blood, Jamie. He says the blood will be more problematic. I don't trust the FBI not to do something that isn't on the up and up. You know, they'll, do, they'll screw something up to to make it look like the blood is different in the vial than the blood in the van. He doesn't trust the FBI. That blew my mind that he actually said that. that yeah. Was, I loved that. Yeah, it was kind of surprising, but I guess it was probably pretty true. Well, yeah, I mean, of course it's true. I mean, of course it's true. If he's going to hang himself out there like that, it's definitely true. Well, he the FBI... Said- the FBI wasn't nearly as motivated as the Manitowoc County employees. 
I, I don't know. I guess it was just kind of a shock to me that he was kind of implicating the FBI. Maybe I shouldn't have been shocked, but it was kind of a surprise. Um, well, he also, but they were the, they were the operative ones there in that for, as far as the blood went. Right. Yeah. Like blue protecting blue, just protecting their brothers and and law enforcement. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. He does say I'm not too worried about the key being found because the key and the blood just follow one another as evidence of planting, evidence of planting evidence. <laughs> you know, if you can if you can explain the key being planted, it's not too far along that the blood could be planted or vice versa. Mm-hmm. So he's not too worried about the key being found eight days into the <laughs> into the uh, search of the trailer. Right, because isn't that the key that was just cut? It's like this brand new key. Right. Yeah. All right, so Strang argues that the 2004 lawsuit is the factor in this whole saga. That is the reason for this, the lawsuit. He summarizes all the facts that in 2005, Link and Colburn were pulled into the lawsuit. And uh, then Teresa goes missing. Link's called back in. And... um, he, they only search the Avery house. They don't search any other people. Um, that it was her. Who's Pam Sturm related to Teresa? Her aunt. Keep forgetting oh. that she's related to to Teresa. Not sure. She finds the R the, the Rav four. Everyone assumes guilt of Stephen Avery's is his point here. Thirty minutes after she's missing, they ask if Stephen Avery's in custody. I mean, she's just missing at that point. There's not even a body. So they're all pointing, you know, all these things are pointing at Stephen being set up. Strang does offer that he doesn't think the police killed Teresa, but he says whoever did it exploited this situation. They knew about all this, this facts of the case, and they just skillfully exploited the, the setting here and took, took their opportunity to take, take their uh, advantage over Teresa. Yep. And he asked the uh, jury for a fair trial. Let's get it right this time. That's all he asked for is fairness. Consider this side. Consider our side. He's got a tough job ahead of him. Yeah, and he's not asking for much. So um, we see some more scenes of Stephen getting interviewed, and he explains kind of the timeline, how Teresa left. And then he went over to Bobby's house. Now, Bobby is Brendan Dassey's brother, Bobby mm-hmm. looks a little bit more normal, Jamie. Oh, my God. I was so thinking the same thing. I was like, dude looks a little swift. He looks like he's, you know, his eyes are blinking like he's, you know, like he's really present. He's in the moment. He's thinking. <laughs> yeah, he may not be getting a, a scholarship to MIT, but he's at least normal. He at least can put a couple sentences together, and he seems like he's got a grasp of the the, the facts and kind of fits fits in this world a little bit more comfortably than, than Brandon. Mm-hmm. Um, but he remembers Teresa's vehicle being there at 2.30. He had to go hunting, so he left at 2.45, and her vehicle was still there. Th- then this joke comes up, this, hey, you need any help getting rid of this body, or you want to help me get rid of this body? The, and it's just kind of a blockbuster statement that everyone jumps on. That he took this he took this joke made like a week before and redirects it back into this opening statement that it was actually he says it was made on November tenth a week later, but and you can't undo this you can't unwind this uh, spring once he lets this out, 
And it, he makes it sound like a confession. He turns it essentially a joke, a smart-ass comment, into a confession-sounding statement. Yeah. And, you know, the way that it actually happened, it was far enough in the future for um, Stephen to be making a really morbid joke, you know? Like, that's what that was. Right. And they're making, the police are making jokes about Stephen, too. Like, it looks like he won't be making that that luncheon. Hey, let's grab his shoes in case we ever need a crime solved. We'll just be able to blame it on him. They're all making jokes, but but of course, this one sticks, and it's the blockbuster... You know, aha moment, the smoking gun. It's really not. Nope. All right. um, So there's a press conference and Kratz is grilled by the press after this. And one particular media person, Jamie, was pretty surprisingly interesting here. They ask him, was it November 3rd or November 10th? Tell us that answer. And he been string or Kratz weasels out of that answer. He just says, well, you heard the testimony in court. That's what counts. The testimony in court today was that it was November 10th. He doesn't answer the question. And then Strang gets up there and the press talks to him and they just kind of say, you know, Strang says, I got a couple, three minutes. Give me, you know, give me what you got and we'll get out of here. And they say, what the hell happened? That's her only question. What the hell happened? Um, And he kind of tells them. And then one reporter says, how can Kevin or how can Ken... Kratz even asked that question then, knowing that knowing that it was a joke a week before. How can he even ask that question? Back in the trial, Judge Willis. <laughs> Judge Willis sounds like such a freaking storybook name, too. You're going in front of Judge Willis. No, not Judge Willis. <laughs> Judge Willis de- denies the mistrial. And he, Wait, hold on. Can I just tell you? Can I just tell you? I have a niece who is an attorney, and her last name is Willis. <laughs> well, maybe she'll one day be Judge Willis. <laughs> All right, keep going. <laughs> he won't even, Judge won't, he won't allow a mistrial because of this joke turned into a statement, apparently, falsely. And he won't even instruct the jury about the comment being maybe inappropriate. This guy is a fuck-up, man. He's either on on the team of the prosecution and he's totally in their pocket or he's just a big fuck up but he lets a lot of shit go that should be like corrected that's his job he's not doing his job okay so the thing for me mike is that that, that's a part of what actually makes me feel so complacent about this documentary series that there's i mean all of the people who should be who should have an interest in losing a little bit for what, whatever it is that they stand for on whatever part of the law that they stand for in the interest of fairness, in the interest of real like pursuit of justice, they don't, they don't care. And that's another, I mean, that judge is an actual stereotype. Like when you think about small town, quote unquote justice and, you know, little corrupt places where, you know, people get railroaded for things that they didn't do. It's people like this judge that you picture in the seats of power who force people into situations that where they're found guilty for things they didn't do. It's exactly this. Yeah, what's you know, worse? What's worse, being diabolical and being sw- and swaying the whole setting or not caring and just letting it fall into disarray? What's worse? Oh, okay. Well, I mean, it's worse to be diabolical and to sway things, but 
it's, I mean, it's very close in terms of. I'm not so sure that's worse. I think it might be worse to be just, just lackadaisical, not doing your job. Well, I don't know, but it's, it's bad. They're both bad. Yeah. Yeah. So Strang is concerned now, Jamie, that if they don't tell the jury who else they think could have done it besides Stephen, that that will be troublesome. Um, but there's a rule, that, and the, I don't know how they came to this rule, but the judge says that they cannot offer any alternate suspects other than Brendan. Okay, see, that is not a rule. That is the judge making a decision. That was his ruling. He could have decided either way. He could have said, and I, which I don't know why it was anything for him to rule in the first place, but he could have said, okay, yes, I will allow you to suggest other uh, potential uh, suspects. I don't know why they were not allowed to do that. It could not have done any harm. It wouldn't have been unfair, but the judge didn't allow them to do that. And to me, that is just, I don't know, it's just another in the pile of just dozens and hundreds of things that are inexplicably held against the defendants. Well, I think, again, I'll say if you think of it as if you look at the explicable side, it's them huddling up before this whole thing and saying, "Okay, judge, you in on it. And they you know, they're all in on it. They're all agreeing that they're going to get this guy railroaded down the line. That's and that, what, that way it's very logical. Everything he's doing is very logical. It's despicable, but it makes sense. You're right about that. All right. I like being right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, Mike Halbach. Mike Halbach describes listening to Teresa's voicemails. The, her voicemail got full where it could not accept any more new messages. And he claims he can't remember erasing any messages. And This guy... <sighs> Who are you talking about? Her brother? Yeah, this guy. Why? Oh, okay. First of all, Jamie, why? Everywhere we look, you either hate people or you love people in this whole story. The only two people you love are the two lawyers, maybe. And, and maybe you could find a third or fourth outlier. But you hate, you freaking hate everybody else, right? There's no intermediate, oh, give or take, take, give or take that guy. There's no emotion attached. You hate all these people, right? The brother. Yes. What do you think of this brother? All right. So I hate him probably the least of anybody because I think he may be telling some portion of the truth. But, yes, I mean, you got to hate him because it, 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 clearly, I mean, I don't know. I, I think that, be, okay, given the interest that he has in the case, that this is his sister, I think that it is <laughs> – least heinous of anyone else that he's lied if he's lied, you know, um, to the degree that, that he's lied because he kind of didn't really, you know, that the excuse he gave where he said, you know, I don't really remember, you know, kind of thing. Like, did you, was your hand just in the cookie jar? I don't know. Could have been. <laughs> you know, kind of thing. I mean, that was the feeling that I kind of got from it. He seemed a little bit like maybe there were smarmy. Yeah, he's like he's like conveniently not forgetting or not remembering. Well, okay, so I don't know because he didn't come off that way to me. But certainly, you know, the evidence that follows is damning. Yeah, I uh, yeah. 
Well, they get a couple. They get a couple telephone experts in here now. Singular, which is now AT and T. I remember when my when my AT and T account was Singular. Well, I'll tell you what, I loved that so much. And that one of the things that I love so much about this um, series is the timing of the documentarians. Their timing is magical. I really want to see this thing nominated for awards. I really do. Well, you get these phone experts in, and it seems that some messages were erased, Jamie. They had to be erased because... Correct. There wasn't room for new messages to come in unless some were erased. So what were my overused answers last time? What did I say? I agree? Or what did I say? What did I say to you? I don't remember. I hardly listen to you when you're talking to me. (laughs) Oh, you wrote them down and brought them up earlier. (laughs) I don't know what they were. But whatever they were, I I agree. I concur. (laughs) Oh, precisely? Or you're absolutely right. All right. Or something else. I can't remember. I'm just picking on you. <laughs> All right. So, Jamie, here's the question. Why erase messages? Why, if you're the brother of a crime victim, why erase any messages of a woman who's missing that may have, like, huge clues in them? And if he didn't do it, who did? He was... We're gonna we're gonna come up soon on how they even got into the damn phone. Like he he figured out the password from some sister's birthday or something. That's suspicious. But why erase any messages? Right. Well, he doesn't remember. He doesn't remember if he may have erased any messages, which is crazy, right? Because your sister's missing. You know. Uh, okay. So if it's me. And I get my hands on those messages. The first thing I'm going to do is ask somebody else around me who has a phone to record me playing the messages so that I preserve the evidence of whatever's in the phone. Yeah, just in case something goes wrong or... Yeah. Right. Right. You double ensure that you save them. You don't delete them. Precisely. Oh, there's my word. See? (laughs) Precisely. (laughs) Precisely, Watson. All right, so Strang now would come cut to a different scene. Strang's talking, I think, to the father, Teresa's father, some guy with a beard. Mm-hmm. The Faja. <laughs> I'm saying that funny. Sorry. The father about the nuisance calls. She's getting nuisance calls from somebody. And another singular tech is about to get questioned when Kratz interrupts Strang and objects and wants to talk privately with the judge and Kratz. Kratz, Strang, and the judge talk privately. Mm-hmm. And the judge disallows the missing messages. I know that asshole. Oh, Jesus. I, I, it's just disgusting. It's horrible. It is horrible. I don't understand how people are not picketing and rioting this, this miscarriage of justice. Right. So we come back to the trial. Kratz, Kratz asked Fassbender. Fassbender is one of the investigators. Was Stephen Avery the only person ever being investigated? And Fassbender says, no, we, we allow evidence to lead us to our suspects. We don't pick one and then run with him. Really? So that, what? I said, really? <laughs> yeah, really. That seems to be exactly what you've done. <laughs> um, so Strang then gets in and says, why did you start with Stephen? Uh, because sometimes you want to maybe look at the spouse or the boyfriend, right? Am I right about that? And um, <laughs> literally the usual suspects. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe uh, why not a roommate who didn't report her missing for three to four days? All of who are men, by the way, males who are like probably 
the 99 percentile likelihood committers of this crime. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Strang jumps right on Kratz's idea that I'll I'll identify fast. I'll get Fassbender to say we suspect everyone, and then Kratz or then Strang jumps in and says, "Well, you didn't investigate X, Y, and Z, who are the most three likely persons." In, in other crimes that, you know, they're the first three you investigate, right? The boyfriend, the spouse, the roommate. Uh, um, it turns out people did not investigate any of those people close to her. Um, one of them is Ryan Halegas. Her ex-boyfriend dated her in high school and college, who, by the way, Jamie, printed her cell records off the Internet by guessing her password. Wow. So I said it was her brother, but it's this guy, Ryan, her ex-boyfriend, who guessed her password. So how much do you want to bet that, like, 75% of the population over there, their passwords, one, two, three, four? I'm sure it's a lot. <laughs> Sorry. I know this is, I, I really, I hate that this morbid kind of humor has to come into this thing. I know it's real. And I no, feel we need it. We, that's, it's good. It's a good relief. Yeah, I, I thought so, too. io9 or um, Gawker or one of those websites has... They've done research on passwords, and like 10% of all passwords are the same password. Like you yeah. said, one, two, three, four, or password, or mm-hmm. some simple, simple stuff. Uh, 10% of all passwords. Like, so if you know, like you could get 10% of all the passwords in the world if you just knew a couple simple things about people. Yeah, I mean, okay, so yeah, I mean, like when you do, when you do like safe light training, um, or other kinds of like security, like like IT security type training, you know, there are there are common passwords like password one is one of them. Change me and the four digit year, like change me two thousand sixteen, is another one. <laughs> I mean, they're like common, 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 and if you put them in in a lot of places, you unlock whatever it is. Yeah, so I guess we're shooting our own foot a little bit here by saying, like, how could he ever get the password? And it's, it's pretty simple that they they figured out it was a, her sister's birthday. Um, but Strang's, Strang's a little spec. He's a little suspect of this. He says, you guessed her. Pa- what's the word? I, I didn't want to use suspect. I wanted, What's that word I'm looking for? Suspicious. No. Dubious. It's not speculative. It's. I can't think of it. Mm. Um, but anyway, you guessed her password? Yeah, it was her sister's birthday. And Helegas doesn't remember. A lot of convenient uh, f- forgetfulness here. Okay, so apropos of nothing, I'm so sorry. I have to break in now and do this right now. But I have to tell you, Mike, on our Better Call Saul podcast, last one, not the one we just recorded a few minutes ago, but the one from last week, I was trying to think of a word. Remember, I was like, oh, Aaron was so what's the word? And just now you forgetting that word made me remember it's assertive. She was being assertive. Okay. All right. Back to business. As Thank you. Miss manners or whatever. <laughs> right. Who's the, who's the lady who does the. Vocabulary? Aaron. Oh, who are you talking about? Well, there's like a dear Abby of vocabulary that gives you words. Oh, Never um, mind. Oh my God. So strange. You guessed her password. Like he's incredulous. That's what I want. Incredulous. Wow, thanks, Jamie. Um, it's a sister's birthday, so Helegas now doesn't remember. Did you talk to her on Saturday? I don't remember. Uh, but on Sunday, I do remember. But he can't remember, Jamie, impossibly, freaking impossibly, if it was morning 
afternoon or night. So Strang's like incredulous, like, okay, you barely remember whether you talked to her or what time he asked her what he asked him what time he talked to her. Mm-hmm. I don't know, I can't remember. Well, come on. Was it morning, afternoon, or night? Can't remember. How right. could you not remember that? Yeah. I could remember when I did our fourth podcast ago, what time of day it was. Exactly. Especially somebody who just got murdered. I think you would remember that stuff. Your roommate? It kind of makes an impression. I don't know. Um, Strang goes further. Did the police interview you together? I guess he's talking about Helegas and the other people. Uh, the boyfriend and the and the roommate. Were you in the same room or separate rooms together? We were in the same room. Did they ask you for an alibi ever? No. So you were not a su- suspect. Um, in fact, you were even allowed through checkpoints and allowed to search. Yes. So all these people that Fassbender says we suspected everyone, including the people close to her. Well, they didn't. They weren't interviewed separately they weren't kept apart from each other they were allowed to go on the through checkpoints on the search they were never asked for alibis or time schedules of their alibis for the days of you know the crime they were mm-hmm. never suspects right yeah i mean amazing right like i mean it's just it's it's incredible to me how it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, but everybody's screaming that it's not a duck. You know, it's just, oh, it's disgusting. So Kratz now comes in and asks um, Pam Sturm, he's got her on the stand, why did you search, why did you center your search around the Avery property? And, you know, logically she says, well, that's where she was last seen alive. And for some reason they gave Pamela Sturm a camera. They gave nobody else a camera. They gave her a camera. And they showed an aerial shot then, Jamie, of this of this salvage yard. It's freaking huge. I think it's 40 acres. But they ran the camera like from a drone shot above it. And this is huge. It would take you for, for to go through every line of those cars and everything. Take you forever. Take you weeks to do it. Mm-hmm. And yet she goes right to the right spot. Yes, it's a miracle. So that Saturday of this of the search. What is that? It's like a motorcycle going by. I, mean, I still have my window open. You got wood choppers and then you got like motorcycles. You live in the most fascinating place. Yeah, it's full of elves and bikers. <laughs> okay, so next they talk to the Calumet detective Mark Weigart. I think his name's Weigart. Or was that the uh, lawyer in Better Call Saul? No. My podcasts are blurring together. Sorry. <clears throat> the, but the Calumet detective calls the Manitowoc detective, Dave Remaker, and says, there's been a change of plans. They're, the big boss has got us something he wants us to do. We need to go back and interview Avery and see if we can search the junkyard. So apparently this is the point in time where the Averys are all like encamped 90 miles away in their cabin. But Earl, the brother Earl, mm-hmm. it's always the brother Earl that gets you in trouble. Right. Never leave Earl in charge of anything. <laughs> he lets them search the junkyard uh, while they're all away. So they have like eight days to go through all this stuff. So then we jump back to the courtroom. Pamela Sturm's on the stand with Kratz, and he asks her directly, were you, were you directed by law enforcement to look exactly where to go? And she says no. 
Um, what were you looking for? A car or her body or, you know, her. And then she finds the poorly hidden car hidden behind like a branch and a stop sign post and a so, pallet. So stupid. And then when she finds it, Jamie, she says she thought she was in danger with her daughter, Nicole. Like, we got to get out of here. But wait, let's take a few pictures first. As she kind of says, God showed us the way to find this car so quickly in this giant 40-acre yard, junkyard of full of cars, row and row after car, car after car. And then later on, Strang and Buting talk on camera and say, they don't believe her. They don't believe Pamela Sturm at all. Somebody told her where it was, and she went right to it. Well, I mean, okay. The thing is that everything that you're saying is logical. You know, if, if, if you and I or anybody in the, in, in the public showed up at a huge freaking salvage yard to look for a car among cars, you know, it's not going to be that easy to find. Unless. You know where it is. Right. She found it in 30 minutes. Yeah. It took her 30 minutes from the time she started to the f- time she found it. And, and why would, if you were going to hide a car in that junkyard, why would you hide it, like, right up near the office on the high point? Because it was up on some little bluff right next to the main office. Mm-hmm. It's just not a good idea. Just that part doesn't add up. Well, the thing is that, you know, there's a rule. The rule is that if no people who are making documentaries are coming to uncover your manufacture of evidence, then the standards are a lot lower. You know, so, you know, if they weren't expecting anybody to come and document what they're doing, then they weren't going to feel like they needed to have extra special, un, you know, specially guilty looking kinds of, you know, evidence planting and discovery. They would have a lesser standard <laughs> to, you know, to apply and to reach. So, um, you know, the fact that they just, they got caught after the fact because people did come to document all this bullshit, you know. Well, I think as a criminal, you should always have your standards set as if a documentarian was going to come in and review everything and take video footage and explore everything and talk to witnesses and post edit and edit and sound edit and all that and make it look very apparent as to exactly what you were up to. You got to be careful. Well, that's right. But you're not from Manitowoc County. You're right. I am not. I probably mm-hmm. won't ever go there. <laughs> Me either. <laughs> all right. So this whole question of somebody told you where this car was is fairly illustrated in this last little scene of this episode, Jamie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't even know what he is. I was going to call him sheriff, but officer, officer Colburn. Is on the stand now, and Strang is questioning him. Plays the phone call back from Colborn to, to, to his dispatch. Mm-hmm. Hey, check out license plate SHW582. Mm-hmm. They give him the response. It's Teresa Hellback. And Colborn asks, 1999 Toyota? And the dispatcher says yes. So Strang asks him, were you looking at this plate when you called it in? And Colborn says no. And he sweats, and he squirms, and he wiggles, and... And he's, you know, how could you be, how could you be looking at the plate? Is Here's the thing. How could you be looking at a car with a plate on it and calling it in if the car wasn't found until two days later? Aha. Uh-huh. 
Ah. And so Colburn tries to portray that, well, I was just checking, I was double-checking the license plate that I knew, that I thought was Teresa's, just to make sure. But you know he's fucking lying, man. He's looking at that car. He's got that car right in front of him. That is correct. I threw my pillow on the floor. I jumped up. That was the best ending to anything I've ever seen, ever. I loved it. Yeah, I mean, words, you can lie with words and you can deceive with clever, you know, the, this is the baby daughter of Mrs. Halbach and her bones. But you cannot sweat and squirm. Those do not deceive. Those reveal. Those actions reveal truth. And this guy was on the hot seat sweating and squirming. He was. I mean, he never even said, I could, well, what I wanted to do was confirm that I had the right license and I wanted to make sure with when if, if, I, if I found it and if I saw it that it was Teresa Hallbach's. He just looks down and squirms and sweats. He doesn't come up with that simple, I mean, it would have been plausible too. Yep. I was double checking, double, triple checking. Yep. No, he's looking at the freaking car with a license plate on it before it's quote unquote found. It's about to be planted <laughs> and he's checking. He's just checking it. Yep. And what a great way to end. I'm telling you, these people, they really, I really hope that they're nominated for a lot of awards because they edited the hell out of this thing. It's not, not just the, the, the editing. It's the way, it's the whole way th- this thing was put together. It was just, it's so well done. All right, Jamie, we're at the end of episode five, the last person to see Teresa live. Well, I guess we don't ever figure out who that is, except if you believe the the trial and the jury that it was Stephen. Um, that's it for episode five, the last person to see Teresa alive. So episode six next time is testing the evidence. Mm. So, Jamie, how do people reach you? Before we get to episode six, um, at uh, on Twitter at word girly, um, G I R L Y. You almost gave a fake phone number there, didn't you? What? You don't want to be connect- contacted, connected to this. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> All right, Jamie, and my Twitter handle for making a murderer, bombfire making a murderer, is at scathing tweets. So until testing the evidence, that's about it. Awesome.